Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. I'm going to be doing a very famous story, one that has been passed down through the ages and everyone knows and loves this story so much because it is quite fascinating. It is a a famous murder story, but it's also a haunting story and I'm not sure that many people know the haunting part of the story. So I'm going to tell you the whole story of the murder and then I'm going to tell you the haunting that comes after the murder. Nice. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Doing Lizzie Borden. Oh, yes. Yes. That is notorious. It's notorious. She's considered to be the first um, really sensationalized media story, like before OJ, before, you know, that guy that his wife got murdered by the guy with the one arm. Like, I don't remember his name. But, you know, all of those really (laughs) sensationalized. This was the original. This is where that all started was Lizzie fucking Borden. I love it. Yeah. She's great. It's a fantastic story. Lots of twists and turns. And then the end is even more twisty and turny with the paranormal part of it. So Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on July 19th, 1860 in the small town of Fall River, Massachusetts, which is just a few hours south of Boston. In fact, it is quite close to Providence, Rhode Island, like suburb close, like a 20-minute drive close. Her parents were Andrew Jackson Borden. He was a successful businessman in manufacturing, property development, and banking. He was worth about $300,000 at the time of his death, or in today's money, $8.5 million. Million dollars. (laughs) Her mother was Sarah Anthony Morse Borden. Sarah died in 1863 of uterine congestion and spinal disease, which sounds like it would be very uncomfortable. Uterine congestion? Uterine congestion and spinal disease. So it makes me think she couldn't pee very well. I don't, I'm not sure what that is. That's scary. Yeah. A new disease to look up and worry about. Yeah, no. Let's hope that they cured it back in the day. But she was only 39 when she died. But of course, back in those days, that wasn't uncommon. I don't think for people to die that young. No. Yeah. Before her death, Sarah had given birth to three daughters. uh, Emma Lenora Borden, who was born in 1851. Alice Esther Borden, who was born in 1856. And of course, Lizzie Andrew in 1860. Lizzie was just shy of three years old when her mother died. Poor little thing. I know. On a side note, her middle sister Alice died in 1858 of hydrocephalus, which is water on the brain. Um, Alice was not quite yet two when she died. So they already, they experienced a lot of tragic death in the Borden family. Yeah, they had some congenital fluid issues. Yeah, apparently they did. Three years after Sarah's death, Andrew remarried Abby Durfay Gray. Abby was already in her 30s when she married Andrew, and it is widely believed that the marriage was one of convenience. Mm. Andrew needed a wife, and Abby didn't want to be a spinster anymore, so she accepted the proposal and became Andrew's second wife, and Lizzie and Emma became her stepchildren. Lizzie was roughly around six when um, her father married Abby. Okay. Okay. 
Lizzie pretty much didn't know her biological mother, and so Abby was probably the only mother she really knew. Right, okay. and she's starting to develop her personality at six. Right. The Bordens lived at 92 Second Street in Fall River, Mass. Even though they were quite well off and they could have afforded it, they did not have running water or electricity in their home. The girls were also kept on a short leash by their father and were only allowed to go to school and church, which led to some social frustration on the girls' part. They were given small allowances to spend and not much else. Lizzie would just shoplift for the items she would need, and then in the stores would just bill her father for what she took. Oh, my God. Smart kid. <laughs> right? This was an allowance the stores made because the Bordens were a family of high social class. Nice. <laughs> yeah. That, I wonder if they would do that today. Probably not. They'd be like, no. No, they would do it like, uh, just wait here while we go in the back while they're calling the police. Right. Yep. <laughs> Despite Andrew's frugal ways, they did have servants help them in the home. One of these servants was a young girl named Bridget Sullivan, but the sisters nicknamed her Maggie. She was an Irish immigrant that lived and worked in the home. Lizzie and Emma were close with Maggie. However, with Abby, their stepmother, they were not. <laughs> not even close. Lizzie and Emma had a very cold and hateful relationship with her. They called her Mrs. Borden instead of Mom. The sisters rarely ate with Andrew and Abby and kept mostly to themselves. Mm. So there you go. As the girls grew up, they were allowed more responsibilities and managed many of their father's properties. However, as in many wealthy families, there were many disputes over money. The Andrew Borden family was actually not as well off as the other branches of the Borden family tree in town. The extended Borden family lived in a very prestigious part of town called The Hill, with all of the utilities and luxuries of high life living. And Emma and Lizzie knew they were living below the class of their kin, so money was always a hot point of contention in their household. Even though they were well-to-do, they were still low class. They were living well below their means, yeah. And so I can imagine their frustration, you know. They're probably sitting there thinking, my God, we could be living on the hill playing badminton in the backyard, but instead we live on 2nd Street having to pump water into the house. This fucking right. sucks. You yes. Know? I can see their resentment about mm -hmm. that. Their, their first world problems right there, like yeah. boiling over. Um, the sisters were furious when they learned that their father had given a house to Abby's sister as she was being evicted from her own home. So the girls demanded that their father give them a property as well. Yeah, you're going to give her a house, not us? <laughs> <laughs> you're such an asshole. So apparently that worked because Andrew complied and sold them their original childhood home for only $1. What a pushover. <laughs> right? This was not the house that they all lived in together on 2nd Street. This was a home that they lived in when their mother was still alive, but left soon after her death. However, Andrew's gift did not really ease the tensions in the household. A few weeks before their murders, the girls sold the house back to their father for around $5,000 or, in today's coin, $142,000. Mm, wow. Yeah, quite a bit. Historians believe that the sisters sold him back the house due to another fight over money. Soon after the house sale, strange things started happening around their house on 2nd Street. There was a reported burglary of some of Abby's money and jewelry. However, a few weeks later, Andrew had the investigation stopped. He started locking all the doors in the house and leaving the key on the mantel where everyone could see it. 
The speculation was that Lizzie had taken the jewelry and money as she was the known klepto in the house. And she probably hawked everything and she sold it. Did. She's like, that bitch, I'm taking her 50 bucks and her jewels. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. She was a bad seed to begin yeah. with. <laughs> a while after this, everyone in the Borden household started to feel sick. Abby thought perhaps they had been poisoned. She even went to a doctor for help. This was just a day or two before Abby and Andrew would lose their lives. Yeah, it was very close. Very, very close. The evening of August 3rd, 1892, the girl's uncle by their biological mother, John Vinica Morse, spent the night at the Borden home. The next morning, August 4th, 1892, Morse had breakfast with Andrew and Abby and then left the home to visit other relatives in town. Andrew also left to attend a meeting at the bank. Abby asked Maggie the maid to wash the first floor windows of the house. Older sister Emma was at a party out of town and Lizzie was somewhere in the house when Abby Borden ascended the stairs to make up the bed in the guest room where Morse had spent the night. Around a quarter to 11, Andrew arrived back from his meeting. Andrew had some trouble unlocking the front door, so Maggie the maid went to unlock the door for him. When she did this, she heard Lizzie laughing on the stairs above. <gasps> Nice. <laughs> That's probably what it like, like a crazy, like, like I just fucking Lunatic. killed somebody laugh. Upon his entrance, Lizzie told Andrew that Abby had left home to visit a sick friend. So Andrew retreated to the parlor and laid down on the sofa to take a nap. After Maggie finished cleaning the windows, she too went upstairs to take a nap. I love the fact they just gonna go take a nap. Yeah, they're like, they mm, it's time for my 15 minute break, guys. I'll be back. The next thing she knew, Lizzie was yelling at her to come down to the parlor. Someone had killed Pa, she screamed. <laughs> and was she then laughing too while she was screaming? <laughs> Someone killed Pa. <laughs> no, um, in fact, I don't think she said Pa. I think she said the word father, but Pa sounds better. I just think it makes yeah. it sound more timely. Little house on the prairie For style. Sure. Yeah. Someone's killed Pa. <laughs> Lizzie had discovered her father dead on the sofa. His face was so badly crushed it was hard to even tell who it was. His eyeball had been sliced in half. His nose was missing. His entire skull had been crushed what in. in the world? Have you seen that photo, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, it's fucked up. He had been struck with a hatchet around 11 times in the face. If you have ever seen the photo, it is one of the ghastliest photos I have ever seen. His whole face just was caved in. Yeah, it's burned on the brain. And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. It's one of the most gruesome murder images I've ever seen. I mean, it's bad. Lizzie and Maggie called the police. It didn't take long for a crowd to gather at the house. The next door neighbor came over and she and Maggie ascended the staircase to fetch a sheet to cover Andrew's body. When they got eye level with the second floor, they could see on the floor of the guest bedroom that Abby, too, was laying face down in a pool of blood. She had been hit once in the front of her head with a hatchet just above her ear. Then the killer hacked the back of her head 17 more times. There were many suspects in the murders, but everyone was quickly ruled out. Lizzie wasn't even a suspect at all in the beginning. Women in those days would never have been considered capable of such a horrible, vicious, and frenzied crime like murder by hatchet. In fact, if a woman was going to commit a murder back in those days... 
everyone believed poison, poison would be the murder weapon of choice. Poison. <laughs> because of this theory and the fact that Lizzie was seen as a sweet and passive woman, it was believed she could not be capable of this act. Andrew Borden, on the other hand, had a lot of enemies and was considered to be a ruthless businessman. So it was immediately thought that the murders were committed by someone outside of the home. Eventually, and through the process of elimination, however, the police swung their spotlight back over on Lizzie herself. When she was questioned, she changed her story many times. Many of the accounts she gave of where she had been during the murders did not have ample evidence to back up her story. The newspapers picked up on the fact that Lizzie had been interrogated, so when the story broke, it caught the attention of a local pharmacist. He claimed that Lizzie had been to see him the day before the murders and inquired about purchasing prussic acid, which is a type of poison. Mm -hmm. however lizzie did not end up getting the poison so she was inquiring about poison but they did not die by poison but perhaps she was considering killing them with poison Mm -hmm. Um, or she had poison that didn't quite finish them off like they were all sick a couple days before all like from Mm -hmm. abby thought was poison perhaps she had some it wasn't enough to take everybody out so she went to buy some more that's right. That might be what happened. And then they were like, you know what? It's no longer on sale. And she's like, fuck you. I'm not spending <laughs> my money on killing people. I got dresses to buy. You know what? She could have just shoplifted the poison, right? And she could have. <laughs> She's She'd be that. like, charges to my dad. Yeah. Ultimately, Lizzie was arrested for the murders of her father and stepmother on August 11th, 1892. She was unable to leave her prison until June of 1893, which was almost a year later when her trial began. She pled not guilty. If found guilty, however, she could be sentenced to death. Many people in town believe she did do it, but many people did not think she was capable of such a crime and stood by her. One of the prosecuting attorneys was William H. Moody, who would eventually become a United States Supreme Court justice. Ooh. Yeah, it's pretty big, pretty big dude. On the defense side was the former governor of Massachusetts, George D. Robinson. So she had um, a pretty heavy hitter defending her as well. Uh, The trial of the century, Carol, did not disappoint. The prosecution (laughs) built their case on the fact that Lizzie had a motive. She would stand to inherit a great deal of money with her father and stepmother dead. She hated her stepmother, and she had the opportunity to commit the crimes as she had no alibi during the murders. Sounds like a shut case to me, Holly. (laughs) Me too. Burn her at the stake. (laughs) Let's get her. One point that the defense made was that there was no blood fed on Lizzie when the police arrived. The prosecution countered this point when a witness testified that she saw Lizzie burning a dress a few days after the murders. Lizzie claimed the dress was covered in paint and that she had to destroy it. Her big sister, Emma, backed this up on the stand and even suggested she told Lizzie to burn the dress. But at one point, one of the attorneys knocked over a sack that was sitting on a desk. Two skulls rolled out of the sack. They were the crushed skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden. When she saw the skulls, Lizzie fainted dead away and the courtroom gasped in horror. When the trial ended, the judge gave a quote-unquote charge to the jury, directing them on what to do next. The charge he gave to the jury per many historians was pretty much in order to just acquit Lizzie. Like a come on you guys, you know she's innocent type directive. On another note, the judge that gave this charge had been appointed to the bench by 
former Massachusetts governor, George D. Robinson, who, of course, was one of Lizzie's defense attorneys. Crook, crook, crook. No conflicts there. The jury, who was made up of all men, had their decision made within 10 minutes, though they stayed out for an hour. Lizzie was found not guilty, acquitting her of the murders. Lizzie put her head down and wept upon hearing the verdict. Though her acquittal was celebrated in New Bedford, where she was tried, she was ostracized from society when she returned to Fall River. Six months after her acquittal, Lizzie and her sister Emma sold their house on 2nd Street and moved on up to to the the east side. side. (laughs) (laughs) They bought a big, beautiful house on the hill where the rest of the prominent people of Fall River resided, as well as their own boarding kin. Finally, they get the prestigious life that they deserved. Lizzie named their new home Maplecroft. I love it. Isn't that great? Very elegant. Yes. After their move into the house on the hill, Lizzie started going to the theater and hanging out with actors. She became very good friends with one particular actress, Nance O'Neill, and threw parties for her in their Maplecroft home. It was rumored that Lizzie and Nance were engaging in a romantic relationship. Big sister Emma did not like the lavish parties that Lizzie was having, nor her relationship with Nance, and eventually moved out. Emma ended up moving to New Hampshire, and the sisters never spoke again. Whoa, that's a big break. Yes. Media continued to cover Lizzie's every move for most of the rest of her life. Of course, they would always cover the anniversary of the murders. And when Lizzie died in Fall River in 1927, it made headlines again. Her sister Emma, strangely enough, died nine days later in New Hampshire. So the paranormal tie to the Lizzie Borden case is actually quite interesting. And of course, I'm going to reference the dead files again. Of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) My show. Would you just have Holly on your show? Please, please call me. She's your biggest fan. Mm -hmm. So Amy, the psychic medium, and Steve, the homicide detective, went to the Lizzie Borden house where the murders occurred, which is still standing and is now a bed and breakfast. Oh, that is such a delightful thing to eat and sleep <laughs> and in sleep such in a that house, house. In that house. The owner of the bed and breakfast said that she had some paranormal experiences in the home. She claimed that at one point she was in the house when she felt like she had been hit hard in the chest. She fell to the floor and was overcome with sadness and grief and just started crying. She couldn't even get up off the floor. She had to call an employee to help her. She spent the night in her car and did not come back into the house until the next day. She also, Carol, found hundreds of flies in one area of the house, just like Amityville. Just like Amityville, right? Guests had also claimed to see tall shadows in the house. The night manager also claimed to see a tall, dark shadow in the master bedroom. He said he saw a tall, black mass that moved across the wall and disappeared. He felt like it was watching him and that it was overbearing. So there's some weird shit going on in that house. So here's the thing. When Steve saw the murder photos of the father and the rage and severe damage to his face, he knew that the person who killed him probably hated him quite a bit. There were rumors that perhaps Andrew Borden had been sexually abusing his Mm -hmm. daughters. And Steve thought that the rage demonstrated in this murder would have made sexual abuse a very likely theory. Steve talked to an expert in sexual abuse about the case. The expert thought the fact that the killer targeted Andrew's eyes may be because they didn't want Andrew to see them anymore like they were ashamed. Ooh, very deep. Mm-hmm. Yes. So during her walk, so Amy the psychic will walk through the house and, and with her 
camera guy and tell him what she's seen. Mm -hmm. Um, So during her walk through the property, Amy said she saw a great deal of abuse in the home. She said that there was a tall man. She believes it was Andrew Borden, and he did not like women very much. She saw him beating a smaller woman. She also picked up on sexual abuse, people being tied up, rape and incest in the home. However, she also saw Lizzie and her big sister, Emma, engaging in sexual activity with each other. Oh, well, then that would make sense why she was upset when she had maybe a, an, an affair, affair with, with Nance O'Neill. Actress. That's what I thought, too, that perhaps that there was some kind of a weird romantic entanglement mm-hmm. with their sisterly bond that... When Lizzie was like, you know, I don't want to really hook up with you anymore. I'm going to hook up with this actress that maybe Emma's heart was broken and she mm-hmm. decided she needed to get out of there. So, Well, and you said that the father was really controlling. So yeah. that kind of aligns with um, yeah. an abusive parent. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Amy thought that the, the sexual activity between the two sisters was just how the girls showed affection to each other since they didn't know any other way. And if you think about it, <clears throat> they were quite young when their mother died. If Andrew Borden was the only one there for a while, at least for three years, perhaps... They just never learned it, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it sounded like maybe Andrew and Abby were not really sexually connecting. So perhaps he turned to them and they turned to each other. Like, who knows? It could be a whole domino. Effect. So you're totally sympathizing and your heart now goes out to Lizzie. Well, if you think about anybody in that situation, how horrible mm-hmm. would that be? Mm-hmm. Like anyone who's in a, a survivor of incest abuse. Because they didn't have an advocate. They didn't have their yeah. mother fighting for yeah. them or anyone. And, yeah. and being controlled like that, they probably didn't have many friends. No. And if you look at the rage in those photos... I mean, it's kind of like if that was what was going on, it's kind of justified in a way because you can only take so much and then you snap and you take somebody out. Yeah. I wonder what the story is with Abigail or not Abigail. Oh, uh, Emma. Emma. Emma's the older sister. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But she always kind of. No, the one that died upstairs. Oh, Abby. So I think that the reason there was so much rage with Abby is because she wasn't either she wasn't stopping it she was allowing it to happen or because she wouldn't be sexual with Andrew he turned to them perhaps that's a theory I have I don't Mm -hmm. no one has ever said that to me it's just a theory that I have so um but plus they hated her anyway because she wasn't their biological mother they felt like she was there just for the money Um, there's a lot of reasons that they did not like her. So I think it could be, you know, a mixture of things, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So Amy claims what she saw was a woman crawling on the walls and scratching at the walls. She saw her seep through the vents in the ceiling. Ooh, creepy. Isn't that creepy? The woman was breathing and growling and trying to make other people go crazy. She claimed this woman can make people see things and manipulate their emotions. Amy had a sketch done of the crazy woman she saw in the house. It was spot on for Lizzie Borden. Okay, but Amy must have known the story of Lizzie Borden. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think she probably did, but she said she did not know what Lizzie looked like. And so when she did the sketch, it looks exactly like Lizzie Borden, like spot on. It was pretty awesome. Now, of course, it's TV, so maybe it's all bullshit, but yeah. I like to believe that it's true. That's that's awesome. <laughs> we'll go with we'll go with we'll that. go with true. 
Amy believes that this insane woman is the part of Lizzie Borden that suffered the abuse and had to split off from Lizzie's main personality. This aspect of Lizzie is stuck in that abusive state and cannot process it. Therefore, this aspect of Lizzie returned to the house upon Lizzie's physical death because this is the part of Lizzie that committed the murders. Mm -hmm. Uh, Steve asked Amy if this crazy part of Lizzie is what is haunting everyone in the home, and Amy said yes. They also theorized that perhaps the murders were planned by the sisters together as Emma split the inheritance with Lizzie as well as pay for Lizzie's defense out of her own money. She, of course, had no obligation to do that for Lizzie, but she did it anyway. Personally, I think Emma just knew how bad things were in the home and realized that Lizzie just snapped. She also felt like when her mother died that she was going to protect and take care of Lizzie. Mm -hmm. So I think that was just her way of taking care of Lizzie. On another note, the owners of the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast on 2nd Street also bought Maplecroft in 2018. Oh, wow. They plan to open the 3,935-square-foot home as a companion museum to their original B&B. But due to COVID-19 and some other factors, they decided to put the home back on the market for a whopping $890,000. Wow. It's a big house and it's a big uh, price tag. The best part is, though, they say that that home is even more haunted than the one on 2nd Street. I've actually been there before um, to the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. I went there when you went um, on your trip for about four years ago, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to Fall River and I went to the house and they were giving tours. So I took I got onto the tour um, and they have it all set up period style, like when the Bordens would have lived there and everything. And um, they have replicas of the crushed skulls of Andrew and Abby in the dining Ew, room. Okay. I mean, it's, it's pretty morose, really. Yeah. Um, it was interesting. But I have to tell you that when I left, I was glad to leave. Like, I didn't like the feeling in the house. It, it just felt kind of gross. And I just was really glad to get out of there when mm-hmm. I left. I don't know. It was it was really weird. But I do have one last thing to leave you with. It's a terror tip. Okay, what's my terror tip? So, you know, the children's rhyme, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. No, I never heard of that, but I love it. You've never heard that? No, I love that rhyme. Really? It makes me want to jump it's like it's a jump rope rhyme for kids but it started out as a way to sell newspapers so that rhyme began when the trial was happening so that they could sell their newspapers but there is a second verse to the rhyme that i was not aware of and i don't know if many people are but it says andrew borden now is dead lizzie hit him on the head up in heaven he will sing on the gallows she will swing but of course that's not true because she didn't swing on the gallows no she? <laughs> she didn't swing on the gallows she, she swung up on go. the hill right. playing badminton with all of her friends she was like woohoo i'm out of there and her brand new gunny sacks mm-hmm. yep and her bonnet so that is the story of lizzie borden and the subsequent haunting of her homes Have you done keto before? Keto? Keto. You know, the diet? That, that diet where you eliminate all the carbs and just eat lots of proteins and fat? Uh, No, but I do have some keto branded ice cream in the freezer, which I've stopped eating because it doesn't have any sugar in it. So, <laughs> so I'm like, you know what? It's not that good. Don't you hate that when you buy diet food and it just tastes like cardboard or something? Yeah. 
And it sounds good in the description, and then you get it, and you're like, you know what, this kind of sucks. Well, I can now say I'm sticking to my high-carb diet because it actually might save me from a very fiery death. Today, my story is on spontaneous human combustion. Oh, shit. That's some scary stuff. And I know it turns out that there are some wild theories as to what may be causing the human body to ignite in flames without any other outside ignition source. So keep eating your chips and fries because this crazy <laughs> phenomenon is sure to make you rethink some of your habits. Really? Yeah. So would you rather die by drowning or fire? Drowning. Uh, why? Uh, I think it'd be more peaceful and less painful. Well, I think about these things and hopefully in a fire though, some people say that you die first from just breathing in the smoke and then you lose consciousness. So I've always wondered how many people actually feel the pain of the flames because if you've ever like burned yourself, mm -hmm. when you're actually burning yourself, that's not as painful as when you're not burning yourself, you know, at the after the initial, effect. the initial shock of the flame, and then immediately it's gone because your nerves have been singed by Fried. the fire. So you, you're only in a lot of pain for like a second or two. Right. And then when you're really in pain is when you've stepped away from the fire and it's healing. And then you're like, oh my God, this really is burning. Huh. Okay. No. I Well, I, I haven't been on fire that many times. No. <laughs> so I don't really know. I'm sorry. It's quite the experience. <laughs> I, I was always one of those kids that was touching the hot plates. <laughs> Taking a poker from the fireplace and sticking it up my nose and like jamming Absolutely. it around up in there. Absolutely. God, it really hurts. Spontaneous human combustion, according to a medical dictionary, is a process in which a human body allegedly catches fire as a result of heat generated by an internal chemical reaction, but without evidence to an outside source. Wow, that was a really long run on sentence. <laughs> but you told that with such fervor. Well, I was you. really impressed. There have been 200 cases reported throughout the world, and most scientists are reluctant to accept this as a real cause of death. It can't be denied, though, that on these death certificates, the cause of death is by incineration due to a cause unknown. Hmm. Some of the most common elements of the post-mortem investigation are that the body is almost completely burnt, but remarkably, nearby furniture, walls, and other items were left undamaged. Firefighters say this is odd, considering at high temperatures, most of the room would show a lot of damage from the heat and smoke alone. But most of the damage is limited to just the objects directly touching or in close contact where the person died. Yeah. I've seen some weird pictures um, after someone has died that way. And like all you see is like their feet. Right. And it's it, crazy. Yeah. And, and that's my other point. In most cases, it's just the torso that catches fire mm -hmm. and any remaining parts unburned are usually the outer limbs. Like... You'll see photos where all that's left are like the hands or the feet or just from like the kneecaps down. Right. And it's spooky. Yeah, it's really weird. It's like they just had like an internal bomb blow them up. Exactly. And usually the victim is alone at the time and was alive at the time of death. But there have been some eyewitness accounts. And I feel that those are the most compelling. Mm -hmm. So... Also, it's observed that many cases, there were no signs of struggle or any attempt to escape the fire. And that's creepy, too. That is. Of course, there was also no cause of an external source of the fire to be found at the scene. So when I started researching this, mm -hmm. I asked, what would Sherlock do? 
So I started to wonder if there are other things in nature that spontaneously explode. And yes, my dear Watson, or Holly, <laughs> I, I did find some animals will purposefully detonate, choosing suicide, uh, themselves as a defense mechanism to protect other members of their family. Really? Mm -hmm. In the woods? Well, yeah, where animals live. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking into the woods right now, Carol. I don't see any uh, suicidal animals trying to protect their own. <laughs> there's, some, there's some serious woodland detonators out there. <laughs> and then there are other animals that combust after they're deceased, resulting in a very nasty mess, like the whale, who because of undigested gases and large amounts of blubber can build up toxic levels resulting in a huge explosion. And this actually happened in Taiwan back in 2004 when a dead whale carcass was being transported off the beach and there were many crowds watching. Bystanders were sprayed with a bloody cocktail of blood and organs resulting in many days of mask wearing just to avoid the horrific stench. Oh, my God. Sorry for the visual out there to those drinking their ocean spray cranberry juice. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. You know, in Florence, Oregon, do you remember we had that yes, whale? Yes, I was going to bring that up, but I'm glad I didn't because you then no, I would have messed no, up your yeah. story. <laughs> yes, yes. And well, you were there. Well, I mean, you heard about it where they came up with this mm -hmm. idea to dynamite it yes. to get rid of it. Yes. But they really thought that it would just dynamite it over back into the ocean and the waves would pull it out to sea. Oregonians are such idiots. <laughs> <laughs> no, this huge, massive explosion oh, yeah. Crushed yeah. cars, yeah, injured people, blubber like everywhere, and then they renamed pieces of flesh everywhere. They renamed one of those parks about after the whale. Which one? Um, Flying Willie or something hold like up, that. Hold up, because I tweeted about it from our Twitter account. Oh my God, what are the chances? I know this Holly? was a while back, but I thought that was really funny that they had renamed it after in honor of that whale they blew yeah. up. So let me just pull up our Twitter and I'll tell you what it was. Yes, and for those of you who are following our show, please comment on Twitter. Yeah, follow us at... Um, What's our handle? I don't know. It's a... <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a uh, like oh, what's our name? Fireside yes. fans. F I R E S I D E P H A N S. Oregon Park, named after legendary exploding whale incident. So it's just called Exploding Whale Memorial Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Oregonians are pretty stupid. If that's all that they could come up with. If you guys want to come to Oregon and stay the night at the Exploding Whale Memorial Park, let us know. We'll meet you down there and we'll we'll talk talk to you about the Exploding Whale and we'll show you the video of which the whale explodes because it was on TV. I wonder if the whale haunts the park. Probably. I would too. I'd be pissed. I'd be like, there's a curious group of termites who live in the rainforest. There you go, your woodland creatures. Termites. And they carry a backpack-like sack on their bodies that fill up with a type of poison during their lifetime. Like a hobo spider. Yes, like a hobo <laughs> spider. And when they have to defend their colony, they choose to blow themselves up, showering their enemies with a deadly blue fluid. What? It's a real thing. That sounds terrifying. It is, but it works. And it's usually the old uh, termites that do it because mm -hmm. they've lived a long enough life to build up enough toxins. So they just like, peace out, bros. So We're they, saving the colony. They sacrifice themselves in a yeah. noble way. They're like, I've lived my life. 
Okay, so in Germany, there have been reports that methane gas will build up in cows' digestive system, causing them to unleash exploding farts or flatulence. <laughs> <laughs> In 2014, 90 extra gassy cows blew up a building. What? It did. It did. When and you're... it actually injured another cow, too, in the process that wasn't gassy. And it just... <laughs> so it was a herd of gassy cows? 90 gassy cows all at once were farting, and they blew up a building. When was this? In 2014 in Germany. Oh, my God. What were they feeding those cows? I don't know, but whatever they're feeding them, they need to examine that. Because <laughs> Also in Hamburg, Germany, there was an account that in 2005, a thousand toads swelled up, swelled up, and exploded all at once, <laughs> leading the town to rename its lake as the Pond of Death. Now, I also had to research plants and stuff. And you oh. know why? Why? Because remember that burning bush and Moses story in the Bible? Yes. Yeah. I always wondered about that, if yeah. there was like a scientific explanation. Okay. Because that's just me. Uh-huh. Well, according to some botanists, there are reports of a desert bush, Dictamnus albus dumbledore, I mean Dictamnus albus, which grows in regions of Israel and is also a native to a large area of Europe and Asia. So this bush, the plant is said to release a vapor that is highly sensitive to heat and can ignite all by itself if the sun is hot enough or if there is a nearby heat source. Hmm, okay. And the vapor is said to burn off so quickly, though, that it doesn't harm or burn the plant itself. But let's get to the real <laughs> heat of the subject matter, yes. shall we? Let's generate and some heat. And that is human combustion stories. Yes. These stories have been reported all throughout history, and because most feel this phenomenon has already been debunked, I will be focusing mainly on the eyewitness accounts. Okay, cool. These reports have gone back as far as the 15th century. Wow. There was an Italian knight called Polonus Vorstius. I don't know if I said that right. Polonus Vorstius which was reported by the mathematician Thomas Bartolin as having a very unusual death. According to his account, the knight was enjoying a few glasses of wine with his parents in their home in Milan when he started to burp up fire from his mouth. Wow. Yeah, some accounts said he actually was vomiting up flames. Oh, shit. And to their horror, he ended up exploding in full flames <gasps> in front of them and died. Oh, my God. There was another unusual case of fire breathing from a lady named Jean Safin, age 61, who was sitting with her family when her brother-in-law said he saw flames shoot out from her stomach while they were sitting at the kitchen table. Whoa. He said, quote, she was roaring like a dragon and the kitchen wasn't damaged at all, just her cardigan. He said that the investigation was never conclusive, but he claims he knows what he saw that day. Could you imagine witnessing something like that? Like, what on earth? It would freak me out so bad. No kidding. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, I was actually terrified of spontaneous combustion because I've actually, you know, heard it in stories sure. and stuff like that. And Well, the photos alone are terrifying. I think Fantasy Island even had Did an they? episode on it. It was terrifying. That show scared me. I had a lot of nightmares <laughs> from Fantasy Island. 1938, Maybelle Andrews was attending a grand party with her fiancé when she left the ballroom to ascend a staircase. Eyewitnesses at the party describe her standing at the top of the staircase and seeing a blue flame shoot out from her body and engulf her where she was standing. So it's always these blue flames. Well, isn't that the um, color of 
like lighter fluid, right? Like yeah. whenever you see a fire getting started, there's like a blue tint mm-hmm. to the Or oil. like natural gas flame yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there was also a story in 2015 of a woman living near the town of Flesburg, Germany, who was seen sitting on a park bench when her body spontaneously lit up in flames. I wonder if she was nearby some cows. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe. A witness who was nearby rushed to her aid, trying to smother the flames with his jacket. And she was rushed to the hospital, but later died. The investigations say it is possibly a suicide attempt. But again, nothing definite has been ruled on this particular case. Huh. So they couldn't find the source of the fire at all. Right, right. And one popular theory that debunks this phenomenon is called the Wick Effect, which states that when subcutaneous fat in a human is ignited by a heat source, like, for example, clothing, Mm Mm-hmm. It can turn your body into like a burning candle. Biologist Professor Brian Ford thinks it's most likely when the human body has a reaction to acetone in the abdominals. And acetone is that stuff in like fingernail polish remover. Oh, uh uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's highly flammable. So he soaked some abdominal tissue from pigs in the acetone and built a human-like model and ignited it on fire. It burned down to ashes within just a half an hour. So acetone can be created in the body by alcoholism, oh, man. fat-free dieting, and when the body is in ketosis. Also, in some cases, it's created by untreated diabetes. So you're saying that if you don't want to die of spontaneous combustion, don't do the keto diet. Well, just to be on the safe side... <laughs> Eat your carbs, people. Yeah, that's right. And most scientists feel that there is likely a source of an outside ignition, but they feel it's hard to find since in most cases the evidence is all gone and all that is left is ashes. It's interesting to note, though, that non-drinkers and people who don't fall into any of these categories have died from spontaneous combustion. So maybe with further research, they might discover it's just the cloud of perfume or cologne they douse themselves in. (laughs) Wow. Well, you're definitely giving me some things to think about, like, you know, no more drinking, uh, because that can help ignite Mm -hmm. my possible death this way. Yeah. Be a horrible way to go. The gross thing about this combustion aftermath is besides finding ashes, there is a greasy, sweet-smelling substance which some have suspected as being the fatty tissue of the organs dissolved. Gross. Sometimes they even find that the skull has shrunk down to a size of an apple, and that is weird but handy if you wanted to place it discreetly on the bedside table or fire mantel place. <laughs> for those of you, for those of you who heard our screaming skulls episode, you yes. know what I mean. It's an inside joke, right? Did they have any idea what would shrink a skull? How can you even do that? I don't know. I thought that was just like a fictional fairy tale for. Yeah, I thought that was just like Beetlejuice. Yeah, exactly. Also, the fact that these flames that shoot out of the body are always blue in color point to an extremely high temperature. It's super difficult to reduce a human body to nothing but ashes. Mm -hmm. That is why crematoriums have to be completely enclosed and burn at 3,000 degrees in order to reduce the body to ashes. Damn, that's some high temperatures. So think about that. It's blue flame. Yeah. And it, these people... It, it must happen so fast because people say they don't hear it. They don't notice it's going on. And all of a like sudden, they don't poof. hear screams, really. Yeah. I mean, from a lot of the cases, the people just sit there. 
There have been about 300 to 400 suspected cases of spontaneous human combustion, but most all have not been labeled as such on the death report. Most just summarize the deaths as unexplainable involving fire. (laughs) Isn't that a nice death report? That's interesting. One survivor of this type of phenomenon was fisherman Frank Baker, who on June of 1955 had been preparing for a fishing trip in his home when he suddenly burst into flames. In telling his story, he said he was able to scream to his friend for help and he put out the flames, rushing him to the hospital. Upon examination, the doctors concluded that the fire started burning inside his body. Wow. What makes this even more weird is that it happened again to him. Whoa. And once more, his friend was there to help smother the fire. That's crazy. So if this story sounds really familiar to you, Holly, it was because it was retold in an episode of the... Dead Files. X-Files? X-Files. I knew, <laughs> I knew you'd get something files right. You were very close. Oh, my God. They did an episode of the X-Files about yeah. this? Mm-hmm. Based on this guy. Oh, really? You don't remember the episode? I don't remember the episode. Oh, my God. How is that possible? I watched every episode of that TV show like 12 times. I know you, show, like, like memorized that whole show. And you'll love this. And, of course, anything that doesn't have a logical explanation, we can always blame the aliens. Yes, the lizard people are here. It's the aliens. Come on. So the fact that these reports say there isn't much damage to the surrounding areas from the intense heat makes me think it could be a highly targeted laser weapon from space. Huh. Okay. You know, like the Death Star. So like an alien is using his little laser pointer to zap people. Or a Death Star or, planet. Or the Death Star. Just <laughs> randomly shooting at humans sitting in chairs like ducks in a pond. Like you and I are right now. It'd be like an arcade game, you know, for aliens. Maybe they can hear what we're talking about and they're getting ready to take us out. Well, it's funny that you said that because there was actually a man in Crown Point, New York, who was watching an episode of The Twilight Zone, (laughs) and he spontaneously combusted, but nobody knows which episode. Oh, no. The whole thing is truly baffling, especially since our bodies are made of mostly water. Yes, they are. Like 80%, 90%. Yeah, so it reminds me of that warning, you know, if you ever started a kitchen fire, Mm -hmm. don't throw water on it because it makes the fire worse. So there is the general consensus that this whole thing has been debunked and skeptics say just because the ignition source hasn't been found, we can't logically say fire is spontaneously happening. I mean, that's like saying just because owls aren't delivering your mail doesn't mean somehow, somewhere they aren't doing it and we just haven't figured out how. Okay, sorry, that was a terrible analogy, but (laughs) what I'm saying here, Ollie, is I like to keep an open mind, not necessarily saying it's true and not saying it's untrue. So I mean Dickens. The author Charles Dickens was an intelligent soul, and he definitely wrote about it. He believed in spontaneous human combustion, and his book Bleak House actually has a character that died that way. Oh, really? Bleak House. Have you read that one? No, I haven't. Mm. I heard it's pretty bleak. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Okay. Also, we need to leave room for the innocent victims of accused murder, like in the case of Nicole Millett. Her husband, who owned a Parisian inn, was accused of murdering her in 1725 when he evacuated the whole hotel due to smelling smoke and found his wife in the kitchen burnt to ashes. Oh, shit. But the wooden utensils nearby and the straw pallet she was sitting on was left undamaged. 
The court found the evidence highly suspect and found him guilty. But he got a good lawyer and later had the verdict overturned by saying the death was a visitation from God and it was spontaneous human combustion. Well, it seems to me that kind of display would be more a visitation from the Dark Lord himself. (laughs) Don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, 50% of all the reported cases took place between midnight and 6 a.m. And you know what's in between midnight and 6 a.m., don't you? The witching hour. 3 a.m., Holly. So wait, how many? 60%? Yes. We're between midnight and And 6 a.m. 6 a.m.? So what is it with morning time or, or in the middle of the night, if you will, and then your water-filled body deciding to stir a small fire inside of itself? A more modern-day incident back in 2010 took place in Ireland and was notable because the coroner officially listed the death as spontaneous human combustion. He officially listed that as the death. That's ballsy. Wow. Yeah, because most will not do that. No. Yeah. Michael Faraday's death. And, you know, when I came across this story, I had to quickly look up and make sure the king of Riverdance hadn't expired. (laughs) You know what, though? That would make sense. It would. For him to die that way because of all that dancing. Yeah. I'm sure he's given a lot of hot flashes to (laughs) middle-aged women. Absolutely. And he's obviously doing a lot of core work. But to my relief, his name is Michael Flattery. Close, but not him. Faherty was 76, home alone, and was found reduced to ashes in front of his chair with no other damage noted except right directly above and below him. The chair itself was untouched. That's so fucking crazy. After a thorough investigation, they determined that the fireplace in the room did not have any accelerant or flame which would have caused the fire. The fact that there was a fireplace in the room and they still ruled it as spontaneous human combustion is pretty wild. Wow. But more than one investigator said they were completely baffled as to the source and they agreed. Like they're just... There's no way to explain it. There's no way to explain it. One of my favorite stories took place in London on the morning of September 13th, 1967, around 5 a.m. Local commuters who were familiar with a local drunk, Robert Bailey, saw a strange blue flame shooting out from his stomach and called the fire department. (laughs) You know how most of these cases appear that the victim showed no signs of struggle? Yeah. Well, this one is very different. Oh, shit. The fire team said, quote, when we entered the building, he, Bailey, was lying on the bottom of the stairs, half turned onto his left side, and his knees were drawn up as though he was trying to bend the pain from his stomach. Oh, wow. There was about a four-inch slit, and the flame was emanating from that, like a blowtorch. Wow. It was a blue flame. Wow. There was a slit in, in his, his stomach? stomach? Where the blue flame was Do you think he, he slit his stomach open to get it out? I wonder. Like, oh, it's weird. Jeez. Ugh. They tried to use fire extinguishers to put out the flames, and that didn't help at all. Really? Witnesses said he was burning from the inside. Oh, my God. So external smothering of the flames was pointless. He was literally burning from the inside out. Oh, jeez. And the account was very detailed, saying that he was in so much pain that his mouth was found biting down on the mahogany wood stairs where he was laying. And later, in order to remove his body... They had to use outside force to pry his jaw open in order to take away the body. Oh, shit. So that's some pain. That's pretty hardcore. 
Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. So I can tell you right now, Holly, if something like that ever happens to me, you can be sure it was the marshmallows as the ignition starter. <laughs> you know, roasting them over campfires is always so scary. Eating our s'mores. Yeah. yeah. I mean, things can light up pretty dang fast if you don't keep the stick moving. Oh my God. I, you know how many times I've come so close to lighting myself up on several camping trips? Because you're trying to save the marshmallow from dripping the yes, fire. Yes, and again, it makes sense. That sweet, gooey smell, they yeah. always say. So you think that spontaneous combustion is just a marshmallow, marshmallow hazard when you're trying to make a s'more. That's okay, a get, great scene. Get rid of my maniacal laughter, please. Maniacal, maniacal laughter, maniacal laughter. No, maniacal, <laughs> maniacal laughter. <laughs> Whatever, however maniacal you say it. Maniacal cackle. Don't don't put my cackle in there. I, I like this maniacal cackle. <laughs> <laughs> they sound beautiful. They do not. They sound weird. <laughs> Here we go. Eight hours of whales. This episode. <laughs> oh, wait, gotta watch it. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Get rid of that. Get rid of your porn, Holly. Sorry, sorry. It's whale porn. <laughs> <laughs> they do have some whoppers. <laughs> <laughs> they don't call it a sperm whale for nothing. <laughs> oh, my, oh God. my God. She's gonna be here all night, you guys. <laughs> okay, here oh. we go. Here we go. Okay. I think this is going to be one of my favorite episodes. I think you're right. So it injured a cow, but did any of the actual farting cows be, were they injured? The farting cows were not, but okay. some of the cows that weren't <laughs> farting. <laughs> In Hamburg, which is a really cute town. It's okay. one of those like romantic Germany old towns. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, there was an account that in 2005, a thousand toads all swelled up and exploded. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's interesting. So it's like creating a fire around it? So it just, yeah, it, it just burns so quickly that the vapor is keeping the plant green. Okay. Huh, okay. I'm trying to picture this. I'm not a fucking scientist. <laughs> <laughs> As the flames die down, do remain undaunted. Though all hitchhikers are ghosts, and all dolls are definitely haunted. Hey guys, be sure to follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Fireside Phantoms. If you have a spooky story you would like to share with us, send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com, and you may hear it on a future episode.